I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 6, probably not on your top 10 list of Advent texts, uh, but I do hope to show you uh, that from this text, we're, we're going to look at one of our deepest hopes, one of our greatest fears, and how it's met in, in Christ. Um, so Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to read the whole story. This is the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above, above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came with an, uh, by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, may you live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Um, no, um, then the king, or, O king, uh, his, this injunction you have signed, but he, Daniel, makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing 
might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. That sends the reading of God's word. I recently came across a movie called Velocipaster. It's one of those low-budget, abs- absurdly over-the-top, trying to be hard, trying so hard to be so bad, it actually becomes good. Sort of a cult film. There are tons of those out there now, by the way. There's Sharknado, which is a movie about a tornado made up of sharks. Zombievers, which is about zombified beavers that attack campers at night. Um, there's also um, Sharktopus. There's a shark theme running through this. Piranaconda. You ca- I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but Google it. You'll find it. So back to Velocipaster. Um, I didn't watch the film, sorry to say, um, but I, I, I can tell from the trailer that it's about a priest or a pastor who's kind of like has this kind of a Spider-Man reaction to something, acquires superhuman dinosaur powers, and he uses this superhuman Velocipaster powers to fight ninjas who are selling cocaine. That's the plot. Now, I start with that for, for two reasons. Uh, one, once a teenager came up to me and he said, okay, I get it. I get it, you're a pastor. So that means you preach on Sundays. But what do you do the rest of the week? I just want to say that movie tells you what pastors do during the week. They fight ninjas selling cocaine. So I just wanted to out Pastor Ben. That's what he's doing during the week. But the second reason I start with that is because when we read... Incredible stories, like what we just read, the stories of Daniel in the lion's den. We can have a similar reaction. That classic, oh no, here we go again. This is so outlandish. We know this didn't happen. Things like that don't happen anymore. It can't be true. And so we dismiss it. Sharknado. It's just a joke. But before, if you're tempted to think that, let me, let me make a couple of suggestions. One, remember, can we remember these stories have been around for thousands of years. They've been told and retold millions of times. Nobody is going to be talking about Velocipaster in a year. No one cares. So at a minimum... At a minimum, it should show us that these stories have have staying power. They've lasted so long because they've tapped into something that we need to listen to. 
they're offering us something profound about human experience. And here's one of the things that I would suggest, and one of the things I want us to focus on this morning. It's actually showing us what a life of faith actually looks like. When the gospel triumphs in your life, when you come to understand all that God has done for you in Christ, what is the, the response? What does the life of faith look like? My guess is that the vast majority, majority of us in this room trust, already trust in God. However, my guess is there are some of us in this room whose faith and trust in God has been shaken perhaps to its core. And others in this room, you may not even be convinced God exists. I think this story is helpful for all of us. Why? Because it blows up some of our traditional categories of what, or assumptions about faith. I want to show you three things about what faith is or what faith isn't. First, faith will not make your life easier. Second, faith is not always heroic. And third, faith will not disappoint. First of all, faith will, will not make your life eas easier. Now, we're kind of airdropping in the middle of this story, but I want to get our bearings fairly quickly. Daniel was an Israelite. He grew up in Jerusalem, he was a Jewish man, and the story is taking place in a foreign country. It's taking place in Persia. And the reason why is that when Daniel was a teenager, he was essentially kidnapped. A foreign army came in and exiled a bunch of people from Judah, from Jerusalem, from Israel to a foreign country. That's where we are in the story. He's 70 maybe 80 years old at this point in the story, and you can see from verse 2 that he's one of the top three officials of the empire. He's worked his way up. He's high up politically. He's one of the king's men, one of the king's inner circle, one of the top dogs for the king. And what these guys did, you see in the story, is they collected taxes. The king thinks that Daniel has done such an amazing job, look at verse 3, that he wants to promote Daniel up another rung. So it says in verse 3, because an excellent spirit was in him, which is another way of saying he had an amazing gift for administration. He was incredibly productive. You wanted a guy to get stuff done? He was it. He brought in the most money. For the kingdom, and the reason why is because, well, when guys like you know collected money on that level, when the money was uh, was coming in, they just kind of skimmed stuff off the top. It was expected. Um, it you know it was expected that money comes in before you give in, you know, turn in your cash register. Yeah, you help yourself to a little bit. But Daniel trusted God. It says that several times in the passage. So he served God continually, and out of obedience to God, he didn't do that. The result, he worked faithfully with integrity, and he wanted to be honest in everything that he did. And so at the end of the day, when everyone else would turn in their cash registers, Daniel always had more. So the king sees and said, that dude's awesome, employee of the year. 
What do we do? Let's promote them. But when he does that, did you notice what happened to the other two guys? Well, the other two guys, when they don't get promoted, get jealous. We see this today all the time. If a, if a leader or a politician is promoted, what do you do? You dig up dirt on them. So their opponents are trying to bring Daniel down. So they go looking for skeletons in Daniel's closet. They go back through his Twitter account, his Facebook account, whatever the ancient version of that was, and he said, did he post anything controversial in the last 20 years? We're going to find it. What Did he vote? Or how did he vote on those controversial things over the last 10 years? Let's exploit that. Anything he said or done can and will be used against him in the public court of social media. Has no correlation to our time today, does it? Then we read in verse 4, they couldn't find anything. He's squeaky clean. So they said, okay, okay, we, we know how to bring him down. We, we know that he trusts in this God. He's faithful. He's got this whole religious thing going on. So they go to the king and they say, oh, king, may you live forever. You know, we think it would be really wise if you passed a law that said anybody who prays to you or anybody else for the next 30 days <clears throat> gets executed. Well, that strokes the king's ego in the right way. So he says, great idea. Great idea. If everyone just prayed to me exclusively. So he agrees and he signs a document that passes into law. And look at verse 10. You would think that somebody who is a praying person, somebody who has just been told by their government that it is now illegal to pray to any other God on pain of death, would lie low. Right? what I do. You think about Daniel's life and it suddenly got enormously complicated. It's become harder and challenging. But why, why would co-workers want to murder him? Well, here's why. For doing his job. For being honest. For trying to work with integrity. Showing what it means to be someone who trusts in God. So he's trying to be obedient to God, and that obedience actually makes his life harder. And that's the principle I want us to see. Trusting in God, accepting the gospel, living an obedient life does not mean that your life automatically becomes easier. In fact, just the opposite. It makes life a lot harder. It makes it more complicated it's, in a hard, it, it, it's a hard reality that I think, it, if we're honest as Christians, we struggle with. We struggle to embrace. I find when I look at my own anger, my own disappointment um, over the last month, it reveals an assumption, a calculation that I, I, I make all too often. And it goes like this. God, if I just do the right things in the right way, like if I like go to some dark corner of the globe and serve you, surely you'll make my life easier, right? Surely you'll bless me. To be honest, the church hasn't helped in this area either. The church has said things like, 
if you just believe in God, if you just totally surrender yourself to him, if you believe in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, he'll heal you of all your medical issues. He'll fix all your problems. He'll bless you with your finances. He'll pull you out of debt. You'll be able to afford that Tesla and townhome. But then there's other parts of the church that have, have said something similar, but they put sort of a therapeutic twist on it. It goes like this. If you just believe in God, if you totally surrender your life to Jesus, you will be completely fulfilled. You'll, you'll, you'll be completely internally, existentially satisfied. You'll never experience anxiety or depression. The rest of your spiritual life is going to be nothing but groovy vibes. It's an attractive sales pitch. It sounds too good to be true, because it is. Compare it to Jesus. His sales pitch, his sales pitch goes like this. If anybody wants to come after me, if you want to trust me, if you want to believe in me, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's another way of saying, if you want to hang out with me, if you want to follow me, come and die. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him sell all of his possessions. Sell all the possessions and give it to the poor. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, the world's going to hate you. The world hated me, and they murdered me. And guess what? A servant's not greater than his master. So if I'm your master, and that's how they treated me, that's how they're going to treat you. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, it has been graciously granted to you not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you remember the rest of it? But to suffer. That's what happens when you sink your life to Jesus. That's what happens when you put your trust, your faith in the Bible. Jesus is saying you are making an intentional commitment and decision for, to suffer. You're signing up for sacrifice. You're signing up for persecution. You know, there's the, you know the song, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken? Have you actually read the words of that hymn? When we sing that song in, in church, I, I find myself looking around going, do we realize what we're saying? Listen to this. Go then earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. Really? Do we really believe that? In a worldly sense, it's crazy. We're saying, Jesus, I want no fame. I don't want to be an influencer on YouTube. I don't want money. I don't want to be a celebrity. I don't want public acclaim. I don't want treasure. I don't want riches. What I want is disaster, scorn, and pain. Really? C.S. Lewis once wrote, I didn't, come to Christianity, um, I didn't come to Christianity to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port could do that. If you want a religion to make you comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. So do you see how this kind of, this begins to blow up some of our categories of Faith, what it means to put faith in God, it's not exempting you from suffering. It's enlisting you in suffering. It doesn't make your life easier. It makes it harder. It doesn't make it you know, less complicated. It makes it more complicated. Second point, faith is, is not always heroic. 
looking back at the story, the law is passed. Nobody can pray to anything uh, other than to King Darius, and Darius finds out about it. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Um, And here's the best part. (laughs) As he had done previously. Which just means he's doing what he already did. Always did. What he's always done. He prayed. But notice this. He didn't go into his house and make prayer some defiant spectacle. He didn't open his doors and say, attention please. And then get down and pray. It wasn't a public protest. He went into his home, prayed like he had always done, even even though the world now told him it was illegal. What you see is someone who's being faithful in the, little, in the little things of life, not the big heroic conquesty moments. He goes to work. He's honest even when it gets him into hot water. He prays even though the world tells him he shouldn't. What I want you to see is that faith is not most often expressed in those big heroic moments. Faith is often just showing up and being faithful and the little things of life, the normal day in, day out sorts of things in life. To be fair, there are moments when God does call his people to do big conquesty type things. You think of Martin Luther King Jr. Think about John Newton opposing slave trade in England. Think about Martin Luther against the corruption of the church during the Reformation. Think about Elizabeth Elliot, John Perkins, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These are all heroes who do big heroics type things. But my point is, most of us don't live in those moments that call for history-altering, life-shaking acts of heroism. Real faith is just showing up. There's a great little book by Alan Noble called On Getting Out of Bed. (laughs) One of the simple and brilliant points that he makes in that book is that sometimes the most faithful thing you can do as someone who trusts God is just to get out of bed in the morning. And to be honest, for some of us, that is an act of heroism. It may feel impossible. But this idea of I'm going to get up, I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to feed my family, I'm going to go to work... That's faith. That's what faith looks like. I remember one pastor saying to me, he said, David, do you realize, do you realize who the true heroes in the church are? So the heroes of the church are not the people that you think. It's not the big celebrities. It's not the missionaries or whatever. This is what he said. He says the heroes of the church are the moms who sing Jesus loves me. To the kids. (laughs) Because the reality is, that's the reason most of us are here in the room. Because we had a mom who sang that to us. We had a dad who prayed for us. It's not because we go to some conference. That happens. Not because we had some life-altering event. Yeah, that happens. It was because our mom or dad sang over us. 
So I want you to see that faith is just doing the faithful, simple little things like singing over your kids, praying with people that you live with, showing up to work, coming home from work at the end of the day, being with your family, checking on your neighbors when a storm blows through, going to class, being honest in all your assignments, asking somebody's forgiveness when you know you've hurt them. The simple, faithful tasks. Daniel prayed just as he had always done previously. Now, if you're here thinking, okay, I don't have faith in God. I don't even know if I believe in his existence. This isn't exactly a great advertisement for Christianity so far. You're telling me, point one, if I believe in this stuff, my life's going to get harder, not, not easier. And two, it's really not all that glamorous. So why would anyone trust in the God of the Bible? That brings us to the third thing. Faith in God will not disappoint. Look how the story ends. Verse 11. These guys who have cooked up the plot see Daniel as, you know, praying as they knew he would. And they say, he's busted. We caught him. So they go tell the king and they say, listen, your dude, your boy. Yeah, got him. Now Darius, the king, doesn't want to, king Dan uh, to kill Daniel. Did you notice that in the text? He's his right-hand man. He's employee of the year. He wants, he wants them to, to promote him to a new position, not promote him to glory. But his hands are tied, and he just, he just signed this bill. So you can see in the story, he's, try, he's trying to figure out a way to make this work. How, how do I get out from under this law that I just created? So he goes and he talks to his Persian lawyers looking for a Persian loophole, so that Daniel can slide by in a Persian technicality, and they're like, sorry, not happening. You know, you made your bed. You know, this is the deal you signed. You got to kill him. So very reluctantly, the king says, all right, Daniel, I have to throw you in the lion's den, which is essentially a pit or a, in the ground or maybe like a cave that was hollowed out in the side of a hill that you would throw in a bunch of hungry lions as a form of execution. So just to be sure, they'd seal it by putting a boulder over the entrance. So they throw Daniel in, and the king's all anxious. He's freaking out. He goes home. He's tossing. He's turning. He can't sleep. He's anxious because he doesn't want Daniel to die. And the moment the sun comes up in the morning, did you notice? He runs over and he shouts, Daniel! Are you still alive? Are you in there? And then look at verse 21. I find one of the most hilarious verses in this text. Daniel says to the king, O king, live forever. <laughs> Which is a way of dressing reality. The thing that catches my attention is even in that dark moment, Daniel's polite. Really? Oh, you who just tried to kill me, may you live forever. There's an irony here. Daniel gets pulled out of the lion's den, and here's the question I think we're meant to reflect on. Why was Daniel saved? Why was he spared? Why was he delivered? You find out in the very last verse, verse 23, we read, because he trusted in his God. Now, if you're hearing all this and you're putting all this together, you're thinking, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. You just told me that trusting in God doesn't make your life 
easier but harder. You're signing up for disaster, scorn, and pain, right? And, and, and now it seems to be saying if you trust in God, he's going to deliver you from suffering. You're going to be able to be thrown into lion's dens, and you're going to come out unscathed. So which is it? Does God, does trusting in God deliver you from suffering or not? And that leads us to Advent. The only way to answer that question is to see that there is a greater and a better Daniel to which this story is pointing if you look at the story of Jesus and you were to overlay the story of Daniel on top of it, it is glaringly obvious how many connections there are. The genius of the, bio, of the author of all of Scripture is wanting you to see that there is a story behind this story that we're reading. It's bigger. For example, think about this. Just like Daniel, Jesus found himself living in a foreign land, foreign and hostile land. Just like Daniel, Jesus was completely innocent and yet hated for it. Just like Daniel, Jesus' enemy, enemies trumped up all these false charges and accusations against him. Just like Daniel, Jesus was brought before a king, a ruler who doesn't want to execute him but feels like his hands are tied. And just like Daniel, the full force of justice falls on Jesus. He's handed to executioners. He's nailed to a cross. He's beaten. He's lifted up. He's bleeding. He's gasping and dying. Do you remember what he does? What he quotes in his dying breath? Psalm 22, he cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is saying in that moment, he's experiencing the cosmic abandonment of God. He's experiencing the cosmic justice of God. But if you keep reading in Psalm 22, this is what you're going to read. Deliver my soul from the sword. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Psalm 22, connecting to Daniel 6. The cross shows you that what Jesus experienced goes far beyond just physical pain. He's experiencing the ultimate lion's den, the real lions of justice and wrath. He's facing the ultimate abandonment. But you see, whereas Daniel is saved, Jesus is not delivered. He's ripped to pieces by the lions. He's ripped to shreds in the cross. And lastly, just like Daniel, after time passes, a brief period of time passes, the shocker of all shockers, the person who is supposed to be dead is alive. At the resurrection, Jesus doesn't just shut the mouths or he doesn't just shut the mouths of ultimate lions. He shuts the mouth of death itself. When you see these stories overlaid on top of one another, it shows you that Jesus is the real Daniel that you and I need. It's the Daniel that we long for in Advent. It's the deliverer that we long for. 
the triumph of the gospel is that somebody has come on your behalf. In an ultimate sense, he experienced the ultimate form of death so that you and I who trust in him never will. The hope is that when you and I put our faith in God, it doesn't mean all your problems are going to be fixed. It doesn't mean your medical concerns are going to go away. It doesn't mean you're going to be happy, wealthy, uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise for the rest of your life. What it does mean is that as you suffer in this life, this God will be with you. You will, you will be delivered from death itself. There is a hope that transcends our struggles, our burdens, all our pain, and all the things that we carry in this life. This is ama- there's an amazing passage in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6. And I'll close with this, where the Apostle Paul says, he starts listing out all the things that he's experienced as one, as a follower of Christ, as one who is faithful. And he says, I've been imprisoned, I've been, I've been, I've been starving, I've been beaten, I've been tortured. And then he says in verse 10, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, yet rich. We, are, we possess nothing and yet have everything. How can you be, and you rejoice when you're sorrowful? How, how, can you, how can you have nothing and yet have everything? How can you be rich and yet be poor? The answer is because he had Jesus. When you have Jesus, that means you can be stripped of everything, you can lose everything, and at the same time have everything because you have the ultimate thing that ultimately matters. You have Jesus. That means when you are experiencing crushing loneliness, there is a day coming in which you will experience intimacy like you have never known before. If you have Jesus and you're experiencing devastating pain and loss, there is a day that is assured that you will experience comfort and freedom like never before. If you have Jesus and you're experiencing oppression, there is a day in which which comfort is coming because there is true justice. And in the end, it'll be worth it. You know what that means? You lose nothing in this life. You will miss out on nothing. You can go through this life being stripped of all your resources. You can be stripped of the breath in your lungs itself and still say, come disaster, scorn, and pain. You can experience all of that because you get it back tenfold, a hundredfold. Put it this way. All that death can do for one who is in Christ Jesus is to drive you directly into his arms. That's a hope that doesn't disappoint. Even when you've experienced all the crosses of this life, it's a faith that will not disappoint. It will lead you through the disaster, scorn, and pain in this life. Let me say this finally. It is. It's a hard sell. It's a big ask. But it's also this. It's a big invitation. It's an invitation to trust in the only person who can deliver you in any meaningful sense. So during Advent, we turn to Jesus, the true deliverer. And we look forward to the deliverance yet to come. Let's pray.
Father, even as we hear these hard and heavy things, we ask that you would give us the faith which seems impossible. There are so many roadblocks inside of us, so we help you to overcome them and convince us that the hope of the resurrection is a truer, more secure hope than anything else this world can possibly offer. We can't manufacture it, so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do this in us. May those of us who trust you bow the knee with hope and joy as we face difficulty. And may those who do not bow the knee look to you and see a beauty, a peace, and a comfort that far surpasses anything the Savior, any other Savior of this world could possibly offer us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.